In the movie Finding Nemo, a clownfish named Marlin goes on a search and rescue mission to save his son Nemo, who was captured by a scuba diver and put into a dentist fishing tank, fish tank, in uh, the dentist office in Australia. Along the way, Martin meets a blue a reef fish named Dory, who saw the address on the diving mask of where Nemo has been taken. So that's a fortunate thing, but unfortunately, Dory has short-term memory loss. And she can't even always remember her name, let alone the name uh, or the address that shows where uh, Nemo has gone. Do you remember the address? If you remember the address where they took Nemo, say it with me. P. Sherman, 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney. That's right. So it's a plot that's a, it's actually a clever twist on a common theme in many movies and TV shows throughout the decades. Did you know that? It's not the first time that they came up with this. It's the Who Am I plot. And a lot of different TV shows and movies have used that where one of the lead characters either gets amnesia or some kind of thing where they can't remember who they are and it all the rest of the story sort of rotates around that situation. It's an identity crisis. I don't know who I am. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I don't know who you are either. Well, life is not a movie, but people do have an identity crisis in real life sometimes where we don't know who we really are. We don't know that we belong to God. We've somehow forgotten this. And so God reminds us in his word about our identity, how it is greater than the superficial things the world tries to teach us and tell us. Our true identity is in Christ. Our identity is children of the creator who he has created with a purpose in life. And we find fulfillment in life when we live out that purpose, that identity. One of my favorite scriptures that teaches the true identity of our lives is from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 4 through 12. And I want to read that to you today and talk a little about it. It says, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's people. He was rejected by the people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are holy priests. Through the, med through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And the scriptures say, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor of God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. 
But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we hear several things about our true identity. Who are we in Christ? One of the things that jumps out is it says that you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So we're saying we're being built into a spiritual temple. We're not talking about a physical, literal building. We're not literal stones. But in Jesus' time and in the time that 1 Peter was written... The temple in the holy city of Jerusalem to Jews was the most important, most holy and sacred place in all the world. Jews from all over the Mediterranean world would travel to Jerusalem. Sometimes they may only be able to go once in their lifetime, but it was a great dream for Jews to be able to travel to the temple because they believed that that was a holy and sacred place where God was present in a special way. It had become uh, so important that for some Jews, it even was an idol. That if something didn't happen in the temple, then it was not of God, they, some people believed. But when Jesus came, he reminded us of our true identity and the identity of God. And he reminded us that God is not confined by the four walls of any building, no matter how sacred it is, even the holy temple in Jerusalem. Jesus reminded us that God's presence dwells within us. That when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God actually lives inside us. And so it's not a building that contains God's Spirit. But it is his people who he dwells in. And so each one of us individually, the spirit of God dwells inside us when we trust in Jesus Christ. And when we come together as a community of faith, each one of us becomes like a, a symbolic stone in the temple of God. He comes and he dwells among his people, which is an incredibly um, precious privilege if you think about it. You, as followers of Christ, are more important than the holy temple in Jerusalem. And that's great. That's a good thing because that temple no longer stands. It was torn down 2,000 years ago. But we still are the home for the Spirit of God. And in this passage, it also says you are his holy priests. Now, this is an amazing thing as well. Because a priest has a special privilege and responsibility. A priest's job is to help 
people on earth who have lost their way, who have um, lost their, their uh, purity, a priest helps those people reconnect in relationship with the holy God who created them. And so they will, a priest in the Old Testament would perform certain prayers or religious ceremonies that would help people find healing and wholeness and purification so that they could be in a proper relationship with God. And so what this passage is saying is that in the Old Testament, that was reserved for certain people. It was only one tribe of all of the 12 tribes of Israel who were honored to be priests to the Lord Most High. And even if you were part of the, 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 the priestly tribe, you were disqualified if there was any blemish on you physically or spiritually. Maybe you were born missing a finger, or maybe you had an accident somewhere along life and you lost your eye. In those instances, you were not qualified to be a priest of God. You think about that. I'm so thankful that we don't live under those terms today because whether it's a physical uh, problem or a spiritual, emotional problem, we all have scars, don't we? Things that might disqualify us because we're certainly not perfect. And yet we are called holy, royal priests of God. Each and every one of us has the privilege of helping People on earth have a relationship with God. It's not me, not just me as the pastor. It's not some holy uh, priests in the Roman Catholic Church. It's all of us. You are a royal priest in God's kingdom. And then it says that you are a chosen people. In the way of thinking in the Old Testament times, people believed that Jews were the ones who were chosen by God. Those of the tribes of Israel were chosen by God. Those who were Gentiles were not royalty. They were not priests. They were not God's chosen people. And so you could say that um, you were a nobody if you were not of the tribes of Israel. But Jesus came along and reminded us, and this passage reminds us, that once you were considered nobody, but if you follow Jesus Christ, if he is your Lord, then you are God's chosen. You are his people. In Christ, everybody is someone of sacred worth. It doesn't matter if you've got scars, if you've got imperfections, if you've got sin in your life. Because of Christ, we are made right with him. And we are God's chosen. And we are sacred to him. In Christ, sinners become saints. In Christ, heathens become holy priests. In Christ... The lame are made whole. The blind can see. The deaf can hear. In Christ, those who were damned are made holy. This is an amazing transformation for God's people. We are God's royal priests, those who follow Christ. We 
are his chosen. There are many different churches in our community that help people to remember their identity as children of God, to remember our holiness, to remember our purpose in serving as God's priest, to remember that we are his temple that embodies his spirit. Many different churches, all good churches that do that in different ways. God has placed every church in our community here for a purpose. We all do things slightly differently, but God has a reason because each one of us can reach the community in a different way. But as we consider our identity, I want you to think about this question. Why are you here at Pleasant Grove Methodist Church? We are a a unique expression of God's uh, true faith here in this community. Each church has its purpose. What is our purpose? Why do we do things the way we do them? I was not always a Methodist. I grew up going to Baptist churches as a child. My uh, grandfather and grandmother were Baptists, and my mom and dad were. And so we attended Baptist churches. It wasn't until I was 18 years old and started dating Kelly that we started going to a Methodist church. And she was not a Methodist either. She grew up, her grandmother, I believe, went to a Baptist church. Her mama, who she went to church with most often, was a church of Christ. And um, they have their own unique traditions. For instance, they don't, um, all of their music is a cappello. No piano or organ. All of their singing is a cappello, which is interesting and unique to them. But when we started dating, we were going to a church with her friend, Laurie Stewart, Wesley United Methodist Church on Hartley Bridge Road in Macon, Georgia. And it was the first time I'd ever really been to a Methodist church. And I remember going to that church, and I was a little bit skeptical because I'd always been warned growing up that you need to be careful because a lot of churches have gotten off of track with true Christian faith and gotten into some superstitious practices that are not healthy for Christians. And so I came into that Methodist church the first time, and one of the first things I see them doing starts throwing up red flags in my life. They come down the center aisle lighting candles on the altar. Now, maybe you've gone to church where they've done that all your life, but that was not what they did. In the Baptist churches where I attended, they tried to avoid many of those kinds of ceremonial rituals that seem to be a little bit out there. It seems pretty normal to me now, but uh, having never experienced it, when they came in lighting candles, I thought, what in the world is this? And it took me a little bit of thinking and a little bit of wondering and contemplating and praying and asking questions before I understood this was not some superstition. It was simply a a symbol that the church used to remind people that Jesus is the light of the world. And when we begin the service, the light of the world comes into our presence and, and is lit and we light the candles. And it's not a superstition where we believe that the actual candles are the spirit of Christ. It's just a symbol that reminds us. And another beautiful part of that symbol is that when the service is over, 
the acolytes, we don't just typically blow out the candles, but the acolytes come and they, they reclaim the light and it goes back out the door. Which reminds us that the Spirit of Christ does not live in a building. The Spirit of Christ is out actively working in the world. And he calls us to follow him out and to be part of that work as well. So I learned in the Methodist church, we're a church that values tradition. We have a lot of traditions like this that help to remind us who we are and symbolically teach us how to live our life as Christians. And I value those traditions. You can think of many different traditions that that we have in our church. But we're not just a church of tradition. We're also a church of reason. We believe when Jesus said, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. We believe that God has given us intelligence. And we ought to use our intellect to know him better. And our intellect allows us to look at our traditions and to understand how they are not simply superstitions, but they are things that teach us about our faith, about our relationship with God. And sometimes our intellect even teaches us that the traditions have outlived their purposes. We're not required to do traditions. Traditions are helpful as teaching tools. And if we find that a tradition is no longer useful as teaching, it's okay to pass those traditions on and start a new tradition. And sometimes we do that in the church. But our intellect helps us to understand God, not as people who are following superstitions, but people who understand God in an intellectual way. We're people of tradition. We're people of reason. We're also, Methodists are people of experience. And this is something that's so important. And sometimes we forget about it in our modern context. Our faith is not just intellectual. It is a relationship with God. God and Jesus Christ is a living being who wants an intimate and personal relationship with us. How do you relate to the person that is in your family or to your best friend, your coworkers? You don't just interact with them intellectually. You have a connection with them. It's something that you experience. You feel things for them. And our relationship with God is is like that. We experience him. We feel him. We connect with him on a personal level. So it can't just be reason and intellect. It has to be an experience as well. But one of the things that was very important to me when I became a Methodist was understanding that we, we have traditions, we have reason, we have experience. But all of our faith, what we do, what we believe, how we act, is founded upon Holy Scripture. Because you know what? Traditions come and go. They have to change. And sometimes traditions can actually be harmful when they do not uphold what God says in His Word. 
And when they don't, we have to change them. And sometimes our experiences are subjective, right? You know that this is true. I mean, sometimes you love your husband, and sometimes he gets on your last nerve, <laughs> or your children, or your friends. You love them today, you're irritated with them tomorrow, but it's okay because you know the day after that you'll love them again, right? Hopefully. Our experience is very subjective, but the scripture never changes. It's the same today as it was yesterday, as it will be tomorrow. Scripture is the anchor that holds us firmly to Jesus Christ. Without it, we drift off into oblivion. And we simply go wherever the whims of our experience lead us. And our experience so often is wrong. Scripture is the foundation of everything we believe. And as Methodists, we're not fundamentalists. We're not some radical group that, you know, the Bible says it and therefore I believe it and I do it. That's not who we are. Although Scripture is what we believe and what's the foundation of all of our faith, we come to Scripture and we use the brains God gave us so that we can look at it. We test Scripture with our experience and say, well, I think this is what Scripture means. Does it line up with what the experience of humanity confirms? And so these things go together. And then we have the traditions of the church, and we say, well, traditionally, the church has interpreted this Scripture in this way. What can we learn from tradition? Is tradition right? So we come to Scripture and we look at it, and we study it, and we pray with it, and we wrestle it with it, and we let it change us. But it's a process. It's not simply, oh, the Scripture says it, and therefore I believe it. We have to wrestle with it. That's what God wants us to do. And that is distinctive in the Methodist Church. And it's something that our world desperately needs. And there are other churches that teach different ways of living the Christian faith. And God ordained them to do that for their communities. And our church, our community of Dalton, needs all different kinds of churches. It's very important that we as people of Pleasant Grove Methodist Church, we, are, we seek to be who God made us to be. And to minister to our community as God placed us here. This church has been here for over 150 years. As far as I can understand, it's always been a Methodist church. There are other churches that have been here. I believe Grove Level has been here as a Baptist church probably almost as long as we have. God put them as a Baptist church in this community for that purpose. But he placed Pleasant Grove Methodist Church here for a purpose as well. When we forget or when we struggle with our identity, knowing who we are, one of the ways that we try to solve that problem is the quick, easy, cheap fix. We look at what everybody else is doing. We say, well, Rock Ridge is a growing church. It's on fire. Let's just do what they're doing. But that's not what God wants. God doesn't want us to copy someone else. He wants us to be who we are. We're here for a reason. The same is true in your own personal life. 
Sometimes you're struggling with, who am I? What, what's my purpose? Why am I here? The temptation is to look at the person on the television or the person that lives in your neighborhood who feels like, and all of their Facebook posts and social media posts, they just are the happiest person in the world. And the temptation is, I'm just going to copy what they're doing. But then you're not being who God made you to be. You're being, trying to be someone else. Someone that God didn't make you to be. So the challenge for us as Pleasant Grove Methodist Church is to always understand and know why did God put us here? Why are we who we are? Because if we aren't doing what God calls us to do as Pleasant Grove Methodist Church, then something valuable and critical is missing from our community. One more thing that I noticed in the church, and we get to celebrate this today, is Holy Communion. As Methodists, we really value Holy Communion. And we call it Holy Communion for a reason. Some churches, um, they typically might call it something like the Lord's Supper, which sounds very similar. And we sometimes call it the Lord's Supper too, but Holy Communion has a different feel to it. The Lord's Supper sounds like a, it's just a meal that you're having. Holy Communion is like, there's communing that's going on. There's togetherness that's going on. And we call it that because for us, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament. In many churches, it's not considered a sacrament. It's called an ordinance. An ordinance. And that's different than a sacrament. You know, many of you might, you can have ordinances in your community, right? The city ordinance says you've got to have your trash bin away from the road by Monday at noon, or somebody's going to come by and enforce that ordinance. It's a rule that you have to follow, or else a consequence. Some churches celebrate Holy Communion as an ordinance. God said to do it, or Jesus said to do it, Therefore, we are obedient and we do it. But it's not really about communion, communing or anything really super spiritual that's happening. Not that they would say nothing is happening, but that's the emphasis, you see. In the Methodist church, the emphasis is on the sacred nature of what we do. We believe that we're, we are being obedient. Jesus told us to do it, and so we're doing it. But something sacred is going on here. God is doing something. And we know that this is true because in Scripture, many times when the disciples would celebrate Holy Communion, it would tell them, it would say that their eyes were opened. They understood things that they didn't understand before as they celebrated the Holy Communion. And so as we celebrate it, yes, we are being obedient. But we're doing something sacred. The sacred presence of Christ is communing with us as we gather around his table. And this is a very special and unique emphasis in our tradition. So God is helping us 
And I'm very thankful that we do it. There's one more thing about Holy Communion in the Methodist tradition. Because we emphasize that this is a sacred, special moment. I mean, the holy, pure God of the universe is here with us. And so one of the temptations in that situation would be, and some churches, some denominations do this. So this is so sacred that you, you have to protect it. You can't let children be around it. Anybody who is not perfect can't participate. But that's not what we say in the Methodist church, is it? We say all are welcome to come. Even little children can come. And it doesn't matter if you've got your life all together, if you're a member of the church and you're a tither and you do this and you do that. It doesn't matter. Anybody can come and partake. Because yes, God is sacred, but here's the thing. That sacred God wants to dwell in everyone's life. And therefore, he welcomes everyone to come and participate. And he has made a way through the blood of Jesus Christ that we can all be purified and come boldly into his presence and be part of that sacred event. And that's something that this community needs. On the night that Christ gave himself up for us, he shared one last meal with his disciples. He knew that he was about to be arrested and tortured. He knew he was going to die in agony on the cross. But he also knew the reason why all that was about to happen. He knew the sacred nature of what was going on. And so at that meal, he sat down with his disciples and he took two very ordinary things, things that people ate and drank just about every meal, bread and wine. But he used those ordinary things to do something very sacred. He said, this is my body that is given for you. Take and eat. And then he took the cup. He asked the Lord to bless it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and drink. For this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. And so he showed how his, the sacrifice of his body and the shedding of his blood would save humanity for eternal life. And as we partake of this meal, we know that he is with us. And that his blood can cleanse us. And we can find nourishment. Just as physical food nourishes the body, the spiritual presence of Christ among us as we celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion nourishes our spirit. So let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for this gift of your son Christ on the cross for his blood that cleanses us and thank you for this sacred meal that we celebrate today that reminds us of his holy giving and, and of the cleansing power we find in his blood. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we approach your sacred table, we come with sincerity to receive the gift that you would wish to bless us with today. 
Help us to receive it and find new hope and new strength in this gift. So we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on this bread and this wine and on us gathered here that the bread and wine might be for us today the spiritual presence of Christ's body and blood and that we might be the body of Christ has been redeemed by his blood. And in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.